to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And here we are once more into the breach, my friend. Yes. Um, we are not uh, podcasting during or after tonight, the third political debate. We should be. Well, part of me thinks that we've said about all that we have to say about that uh, in terms of getting caught up in the... If we went to Facebook Live right now, people would say we should we yeah should. well you probably, probably we would get we would get the, we would be heeding the demos <laughs> we'd be truly democratic <laughs> but you know part of it's hard and, and may, there is there is an appropriate critique of what's been going on and i think uh there's a very legitimate uh call to to to, to speak out against uh the things we see wrong about both candidates um and i think uh Obviously, we've been talking about Donald Trump ever since we started this podcast. Absolutely. And it uh, was all fun and games when he came down that escalator. <laughs> and it got it went from getting dramatically serious to, you know, kind of it's it's gotten kind of sad now, I think in some ways. And I think maybe for the first time um really dangerously destructive. The saddest thing I have been brought to my deepest point in this election cycle of intellectual and existential angst and crisis when I think it was Monday it was revealed that Billy Bush got nine million dollars <laughs> in a settlement <laughs> Billy Bush has no talent that I can see like right. Billy Bush should have paid them like to leave I mean like it, I, so this is going to be hostage taken but they're going to be C-list kind of news people all over all over the country that are that are going to like gorge their employers because they're like, look, if Billy Bush gets nine million, what am I worth? I think you and I probably would stop podcasting for a million apiece. I'm, I'm at million. I, I was much less than that. <laughs> what would the, what would be our price? Tag? I don't know. But right. make us an offer. Make us an lipless. offer. Lipless. Re- make lipless. What do you got in your checking? You know, we we pink would, slips are on you, the table. You you could if if we're as dangerous as you think we are. You could actually do the whole world of service. You could buy it. We'll, we'll even give you the equipment. Yeah. Not the iMac, but... Buy us out. You could buy us out. You could, buy us it could out. be Freedom Radio. You could even have all the intellectual property of all our intellectual property. Absolutely. You could do whatever <laughs> you want. Like you could play the old tapes, like sound effects, spoof us. Mm. Um, I was listening to Dan Carlin's latest um, podcast about the election. And, you know, he's he's always somebody who's very provocative. And he, he was talking about... Um, why he neither supports uh, Donald Trump, uh, which he says is pretty obvious why he doesn't support Donald Trump. But he takes issue with those folks who um, critique him for saying if he votes a third party, um, that somehow he's wasting his vote. And he he makes a very strong argument. Um, He makes a strong argument that voting for Hillary Clinton is supporting the status quo and not addressing some of the most critical issues that he thinks are, um, you know, that we're heading for an iceberg, as he says, in our in our country. We need some radical responses. Now, my response to that would be uh, our two current uh, major third-party candidates uh, would actually do nothing for us to, to stop that iceberg. And they're not really serious candidates. I, I think there was a year we talked, we did a whole podcast on this. This was an opportunity this year for there to be a real alternative to the two major parties because the two major parties are part of the problem in this country. But we didn't, we didn't get that with, um, with the, with our, our third parties that are running this year, at least, uh, the best, I don't think that you and I didn't think that, uh, John Oliver, 
<laughs> certainly doesn't think that if you've seen his latest thing on the third parties. And apparently the ma- vast majority of the American electorate uh, does not see either of these two folks as being uh, even serious alternatives to the Republicans or the Democrats. Yes. They, they, <laughs> they, well, what is Aleppo? What is Aleppo? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. See, for him, it's good that he doesn't know where that is. So it is. It's an be, asset. He won't bomb them. You can't bomb it if you don't know what it is. That's not true. You could bomb something by mistake and not know what it is. I mean, you could actually. I wouldn't want to say that's impossible. No, no, I'm no. I'm not only is it not impossible that it happens all the time. Um, you and I have had a lot of conversations around our concerns over um, what happens after this election. Uh, that's that. There's something a little different about the rhetoric of both sides against the other that um, there seems to be a real tendency, uh, and and it looks very likely that Donald Trump is going to lose, but that he is not going to go away. And the issues and people that that, he resonated with are not going to say, oh, Hillary Clinton won. Okay. Scott Baio will not go quietly into the night. You don't get the lead role in Joni Loves Chachi by being someone that's not tenacious. So what, what as Christians, because let's face it, there has been an awful lot of rhetoric of Christians uh, on both sides of the aisle here, uh, kind of accusing the other side of not really being Christian. And uh, what you said before the podcast, I said, well, that's not a very Christian thing to do. And you go, no, being critical of other Christians is a remarkably Christian thing to do. It's something Christians do all the time. Right, exactly. That's almost the norm, right? <laughs> like, uh, you, you how, like judge, being judgmental, uh, someone at my wife's practice had their baby baptized. They're, they're Catholic. And when she came in, she's usually a pretty gregarious kind of sanguine baby and she had this kind of like cool look at everybody kind of kind of a little you know distant and cold and they're like what's up with maya and then he goes well she's a christian now she's <laughs> she's judging us all <laughs> she's, she's, she's sus- we're all suspect um i think that one of the the big problems and that's just kind of talk among christians because i you know that's um that's what we are and, and what we try to uh, you know we try to speak from that position and as well as speak to it. It seems to me the failure to to really listen to each other is a you know that's a constant problem. But um, you know we've been pretty clear about where our you know you know where our politics are are, are leaning. But I. I am increasingly uncomfortable with the idea that we haven't really listened as, and I'm talking about we as kind of uh, Christians who have been rightfully critical of Donald Trump and the things he stands for. But I don't think that we have adequately listened to uh, the needs and the concerns of the many people that he is giving voice to. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of people that feel left out of, of economic progress. They feel alienated in the culture. Although, it is interesting. The average Trump voter made seventy-two thousand dollars last year, and it's not impacted by tra- uh, trade stuff like NAFTA and things like that. At least that's what came out demographically, like this week. But again, I mean, that's how. how what's the average median right. mean? Right. I mean, there's there's still a group of people, especially probably the. Uh, the or as Donald Trump calls them, not being kind. I love the poorly educated. I mean, now people that live in working class reality, particularly in non-urban coastal sections of the country, there's 
deep abiding frustration. Right. And the kind of jobs that used to be available. I mean, I just did a funeral for um, a guy who served in Korea. He worked for the same company for 40 years. You know, he didn't make a lot of money, but he worked overtime to get extra money for his family. Um, and he was able to, you know, buy a house, uh, put three, three kids through college uh, and be able to you know, live comfortably, you know, relatively comfortably and simply in retirement. I, that option is is not out there for a lot of people anymore. Yeah, no, I think that that's. I mean, one of Dan Carlin's. What were his big systemic issues? He said A was corruption, right? right. The first thing. The second, by corruption, he means uh, a a rigged system. It is a rigged right, right. The, system. It, yeah, I mean, you have a certain group. It's it, like there's a sense in which even though there's a democratic process that will execute with remarkable fairness there's still an oligarchical dimension to it the pe- the candidates that are w- w- wound up being presented as a viable choice are, are reflect certain interests that you know and, and and get there with certain kinds of funding that that make it tough for it to be integrative yeah. yeah let me be very clear about what i mean by rigged system it's not that the actual voting process is rigged that actually is remarkably irresponsible of him to say that. The rigged system is that whether you're talking, you know, big money from the pharmaceuticals or big oil and energy or whatever the the insurance companies, there's huge amounts of money that go in to keeping the status quo and preventing a lot of programs that would help the average person. Yeah, and I said that was corruption. The second was just constitutional crises where, you know, he was talking about how, let's say, Trump is elected and he just decides a couple months in to drop a bomb, a nuclear weapon to detonate one off the coast of North Korea to show, you know, you don't mess with America. That we've, we've, we've kind of gotten to a place where presidents, presidents didn't used to be able to do that. There was, you know, a requirement for Congress to declare war, like the Constitution says, which we've just kind of conveniently done away with. And, well, you know, it's for political expediency and lots of other reasons. And everybody, you know, no, everybody critiques the overuse of executive power until they get in office and then they expand it. So, you know, and then the third one was uh, jobs. And there was a fourth one, which I forget what the fourth one was. Well, he's concerned about civil liberties, you know, the, the it, it, you know, kind of the all pervasive, um, you know, eye of the government in different right. areas. I, I would say also the constitutional crisis is when the Senate no longer approves presidential appointees. In other words, they, when they no longer, the vetting process is not vetting. It's it's become, it's politicized all the courts and, and ambassadorships and things like that. That is a, that is a, that is against the, that's against the spirit of the constitution on the legislative side. So you've got expanded executive powers in areas that should be, Congress should have a check and balance. And then you have Congress being irresponsible in the things that truly are the executive branches. And what that does is it's just one other way government is not working. Yeah. And so he thinks, you know, that, that we need some fundamental, that, that basically like, you know, his, his point was like, if you're, if you're choosing between two candidates and let's say, you know, one gets a, you know, what, let's say one student in the sixth grade gets a 37 on the math test and one gets a 48. Well, the 48 did, d- does better, but neither of them passed. So, I mean, there's a relative. So, if you're talking about, like, I mean, I think he thinks that there's a sort of flawed, there, there's there's an inherent flaw in looking at lesser of two evils when neither choice will solve what he thinks are these big systemic issues that need to be solved. Right. Yeah. And I think that's that's a that's a problem and the problems just get bigger and the more we push them down the road uh the harder they are going to be to solve and so i i do 
think there are a lot of signs that we as a culture are in 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 various you know in a very precarious position and uh there are things that are being said now that never would have been said in the past while uh really very real problems continue to get pushed down the road and um and you can only do that so long till things just collapse so i've been thinking about all right what's a constructive response to the um climate in this country uh what is a necessary response to the kind of animosity that's being expressed from one Christian segment to the other Christian segment. And uh, for me, I think one of the things that really needs to be um, there almost needs to be a new peace movement. And, and I think it needs to begin, I mean, there needs to be a peace movement within our country, but I think it needs to begin with um, Christians of goodwill, particularly those who disagree about uh, some of these core issues. So we get those seven people together. <laughs> well, that's that's a start. That's a start. But I, I think the fact is that we don't listen to each other. I, 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 I think that, uh, and that sounds like such a cliche, but the reason I don't think we listen is because we don't really allow the other person to teach us. I, um, a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Francesca Dusalisa, has just given two lectures that I think are eventually going to be books. Uh, one's on prayer, and another one is dealing with what are the issues behind human trafficking. And one of the central parts of each of those lectures is this idea of vulnerability. In other words, what really is at behind our need to reach out to those who are victims of some of the worst oppression is that to see in their vulnerable situation, their vulnerability, our own vulnerabilities, and that there's that that way we can see them not as oh those poor people, but it, it's a way of touching in our own humanity. Um, uh, uh, the you know philosopher Emmanuel uh, Levinas, yeah, Levinas, Levinas, uh, you know, talks about that idea of being able to uh, really see the face of the other, and in the face of the other, really being able to begin to understand what it means to love and to listen and to be taught by each other. And the other, in her, in her lecture on, on um, prayer, one of the things she talked about intercessory prayer is that in intercessory prayer, the, the true job is not to just list, okay, Lord, this is what we need, or this is what we want, but it's to actually be in solidarity with the vulnerability of the need you're praying for. And and it's it's a it's really it's it's a function of loving your neighbor. In other words, how do I identify with the person who is struggling fighting cancer? How do I identify with the marriage that's in trouble? How do I identify with a country that's in trouble? Um, how do I pray for m- my political enemy or my theological enemy? Um, or the person who is the other. I mean, that's the other thing. How do we recognize um, the other as a, as a human being? And in that very act, uh, we are seeing, you know, the, the shadow or the face of God as well. Yeah, it's funny because I, like, I, get, I get so much rubric. I watch Fox News all the time and I consume lots of conservative media. Like, in fact, I wouldn't say most of what I listen to. And I'm, you know, full disclosure, I'm a registered Democrat. I, I gave money to Bernie Sanders. I would say the majority of media I consume is and for that reason i mean some, some of it's just like i mean i'll ask you it, like what john stewart says give give to fox they do good television you know like it's very like are liberals ruining the country well maybe i don't know 
<laughs> Maybe <laughs> are, but no, not so, you know, and so some of it is theater. But I think like it, it is, it is interesting that like you and some some stuff, you know, I I learn more from than others, so, you know. But but it does get you in the habit of like trying to, you know, and sometimes it just makes you frustrated and you wind up feeling superior and judgmental. But other times, you know, sometimes like okay, what 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 does the world look like here? I mean, T. S. Eliot says there's no such thing as a false theory that that you know from some context is true and that's why he says i mean he's being hyperbolic but he says that's why schizophrenia is not so much a disorder but a philosophical position and that somebody <laughs> right. like it looks reality looks that way and so like what what is it that you know this is why i think humanities are so important right in, in education in that they enable us to imagine well there's a much different way to order my world than the one you know the than the one i'm choosing and maybe things the way things are thought about or you know would give me insights into some of what dan carlin's talking about right that you you know that that, you know that we i mean i think paul tripp said that most people in crisis don't need information they need imagination and i think that that so much of it feels like the conversation is like right now is one that lacks utter there's no imaginative possibility we've all seen you know uh you know the well maybe we haven't all seen but there's a youtube video of it during one of the black lives matter protest uh one uh an african-american man goes up and gives a police officer a hug oh yeah that was amazing it is amazing but that's actually that's part of the answer uh you know i just drove by a church on my way here it has a huge banner i mean a huge banner but uh that in front of the church that says we support the local police now, I certainly, I pray for those who keep the peace, you know, I pray for, you know, protection for those folks. But what is that banner trying to do? Uh, is it merely saying we support our local law enforcement or is or can it be contrived? If I'm, for instance, if I drive by there and I'm an African-American man, young man, what is that? What is that? Is that, is that saying something to me? Is that, am I trying to say a positive thing? By implying the negation, uh, I don't know, and that's part of why I think, on the Christian, pers- from a Christian perspective, um, we have to begin to try to understand um, the other, whatever that other is, whatever position you're in. You have, a, I think, a spiritual obligation, if not a human obligation, to try to to understand the other and to um, to listen to them and. By listening to them, you're putting yourself in somewhat of a position to be taught by them, regardless of if you disagree with them politically or their situation um, from yours is is so different. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. Well, how should we pray for this election? It was funny. I was listening to I made some sort of funny comment, and and the funny comment became you know this this kind of. It's people on both sides took it seriously and were arguing back and forth. And one person on social media finally said, well, you know, we'll have to pray that God's will happens in this election. Now, um, I actually think that how the next president will be selected will be by um, whoever gets the most votes. It's possible. Yeah, that's why I think. And so. Although Chris Rock, when it was Obama, was running for senators. I mean. Come on, he's not going to, he could get the most votes. They're going to say, oh, that's great. Congratulations. This year, it's who has the most bacon. <laughs> <laughs> so it does, you know, but uh, ordinarily. But yeah. all right, so so I, I don't know that we have to say, all right, that God's going to predetermine this election. This may, um, I think how this election gets gets resolved or who how the election is decided by who gets the most votes. 
how the election is resolved, that may be a whole different different issue. In other words, that may be exactly where the prayers need to be to be prayed. You know, how do I pray? What does it mean for me to pray for those who differ in my from my position? And I need to pray for that because if I can't see them as human beings, then then I I am the idolater. Yeah, and I think that you know, I mean, God's injunction to the exiles in Jeremiah twenty nine to seek the shalom of Babylon. You know, I mean, there there are people probably that after the kingdom of Judah has been decimated and they're in exile, there are people that probably think that the best thing to do is sit outside Babylon and throw rocks at it. You know, and there are other people that probably think let's just go along to get along. Like we had a good run, temple's gone. I mean, look, they've got nice hand cards here. We, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm learning how to pronounce the names of these Marduk, Tiamat, Kangu. This sounds great. But, you know, I think Jeremiah calls them to something distinctive, like to, to be, uh, to seek the shalom of, of the city because in it they'll find their shalom. So I think there's something about, and that was a place that seemed probably utterly offensive to every, everything that shaped their own spiritual and political identities. So I think there's a capacity to be in real solidarity, or at least a call to it. Well, I think absolutely. I think, for instance, uh, again, we as men uh, have no idea what it means to be a, a woman in this culture. And, and the fact that some of these uh, beyond boorish uh, it's more than boorish these obscene and you know sexually violent laden language taps into um, you know a whole realm of experiences that women go through I mean it, we live in a culture where one in three women have experienced some kind some form of sexual violence so uh, as men we have to you know we can't just brush this off we we have to realize we don't know what that we we can't experience that in the same way, and so there has to be a sense of vulnerability there, so that we can understand those who are in a vulnerable vulnerable position there. Our sense of humility. The same thing as white men. We don't we don't know what it it's like to drive down a road or be on a highway and a police car passes us, or we see that they turn their lights on behind us. Okay, what we experience in that moment. Uh, has, can't even begin to relate to what uh, our African-American brothers experience in that situation. I think the same thing true is, what does it mean to be a working poor person? I mean, it's so easy for uh, those of us who've had the privilege or have had the hard work of education and and think a certain way to not understand what it means to be uh in a situation of of limited opportunity, or where the world has changed radically, and you are the brunt of uh, of jokes constantly, uh, you know, on TV and films, on the radio and such, in the multimedia. So I, I think that it it you know, in praying for this election, we need to begin by praying for all those folks who, in one way or the other have been harmed or disparaged or in vulnerable positions, uh, which this election most likely, however it turns out, uh, their situations are not going to be changed or improved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that every, I mean, I don't know. I think that, uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's, that's definitely true. I mean, I think everybody's, it's funny, we live in a, in a culture of exiles right now. Everybody, everybody thinks if people are on the right in this country, we're becoming socialists. If you're left, if you're on the left, we're becoming right wing. If you're a person that's for gun control, then the NRA runs the country. If you're somebody that it, it wants more permissive gun things, the, the gun rights people are winning and they're taking all their guns. If you're, you know, I mean, on every, on every issue, everyone feels like they're losing. So I think that like there's, it's really interesting. That there was this, you know, last week, 
the or two weeks ago, the lectionary passage was about the seven um, lepers and the one that comes back. Jesus, you know, sends them to go show themselves to the priest, which is alluding to Leviticus, which you do that after you were healed. So Jesus is kind of saying, you're already, you're dead and alive now. And only one comes back. And, and Robert Capon reflects on like what that means. He kind of connects it to the prodigal son. That like, you know, the prodigal son story where he, you know, the son, the younger son goes off and squalor, it goes, squanders his, his inheritance, which he demands rudely and then comes back and offers himself as a hired hand. He's like, that's not where his redemption starts because he still doesn't see that he's dead yet. It's only when he sees that he's dead with his father says, you know, he's, he, you know, we've all like rehearsed our speech. When you're rehearsing your speech, you're not like, you're not in the place of being broken. You're, you, you still think you can like maneuver your way out of it through like savvy rhetoric. So like what stops his rehearsed speech is the embrace and the, and the declaration that he was dead and is now alive. And then Capon connects that to the leper. Like, you know, these other six lepers, it's sort of like, maybe they're kind of just, all right, we're going back to our old thing. But the one really realizes who's a Samaritan, who's like an outsider realizes. Like, um, he's grateful because he's not just like uh, rejuvenated, but he's been resurrected in a real sense. And like, I think that, you know, that's, you pray that there's a sense in which we can, maybe, I don't know, maybe it gets darkest before the dawn in some sense. Like that. that I guess, uh, is about the greatest song ever written about America. And it's by Woody Guthrie. And what's so great about it is it gets, it gets right to the heart of the promise of what our country was supposed to be about. And I guess, I don't know if you talk to some of the unemployed steel workers from East LA or Pittsburgh or Gary there are a lot of people out there whose jobs are disappearing I don't know if they'd feel if this song is true anymore and uh, I'm not sure that it is but I know I know that it ought to be so uh, I'd like to do this for you reminding you that with countries just like with people it's easy to let the best of yourself slip away.
Well, the sun came shining as I went strolling through the wheat fields waving and her dust clouds rolling and her bells were ringing as the fog was lifting and I seen the slam was made for you and me One Sunday morning In the shadow of the steeple By the relief office I saw the people And they were hungry And they were wondering If this land was made for you and me This land is your land This land is my land From California To New York Island From the Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters Yeah, this land was made for you and 